God, thank you again for the opportunity to be together with our brothers and sisters uh, twice in one day, um, being able to worship you and to come together for encouragement, uh, for teaching from the Word, um, to learn more about you. Um, God, I ask that these conversations and um, the time we have together would be edifying, um, would be encouraging, and that we would continue to just uh, point to your truth and who you are. Um, so we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so tonight, to begin, uh, what I wanted to do is uh, give you a road map of where we are headed uh, tonight. So the first kind of teaching section here um, will be how the gospel directs our sexuality. That's, that's foundation first. That's where we're starting. We're looking at God's intentional design, uh, the authority of Scripture, and what the Bible teaches about sex and sexuality. And through that filter, then, um, we'll touch on a few thoughts um, and answer a question or two uh, when it comes to navigating this topic in our culture. It may seem a little disjointed at the end of my section, but hang in there with me. Um, the second section, uh, Alyssa Mezik is going to be teaching uh, tonight. We referenced that a few weeks ago. Um, so again, starting with the gospel directs our sexuality, and then she's going to take that and go, how do we teach that then to our kids? How do we teach uh, kids God's design of sexuality? So we're going to be talking a little bit, referencing the difference between objective truth and subjective claims. We're going to be, how do we grow a proper view of sexuality before ever talking to our kids about sex? Because you can do that. So what does that look like? How do you balance shielding your kids from what's happening in the world versus exposing them at a proper level to help them understand the darkness of, that we're walking through, but the goodness of, of the gospel that we have to hold on to? Um, and then what that looks like in different ages and stages. So that's kind of where we're going tonight. Um, we only have 25 minutes for this first, first section, so I'm going to talk fast, and you're going to have to listen fast, again, to borrow a Tom Harmon. I think that's appropriate every time. Um, I, think, I think the place to begin this conversation um, is really a question of authority. It comes to a question of authority. So when it comes to the right answers, what we believe about gender and sexuality, you have to start with answering the question, who gets to make the call? Who gets to make the call? Who determines where all of this lands? This is an authority, or I would even say maybe a worship issue. This is an authority issue. If I have been saved, if I subscribe to the good news, truly taking ownership of the gospel, then I am willingly bringing every part of my life under the authority of God. I kind of jumped on that a little bit this morning if you were in first service. Um, this was something that was on my head. So if I, if I am truly taking ownership of the gospel, then that means I am willingly bringing every part of my life under the authority of God. Okay, so that means my gifts, my abilities, my feelings, my thoughts, my actions, my attitudes, my experiences, all of it. All of it I bring under the authority of God because all of me is fallen, right? All of me is fallen. This is the gospel, okay? Knowing my sinfulness, aware of God's holiness, I give up my fallen nature and my brokenness, my, my not able to live up to perfection, whatever I think is best, I give that up to receive the life of Christ, His wholeness, His perfection, whatever He says is best, okay? So I receive a, a heavenly inheritance and the very presence of God, but I give up my right to choose what is best for me. Understanding, again, we're taking this all the way back to week one. This is an ownership of the gospel issue. So this is, it is God's right now, okay? He holds the authority, despite my feelings, despite my experience, despite what looks or sounds best, God makes the call. Why? Colossians 1.16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
We're serving a holy God. We don't do this simply because it makes our life go better. That is truly the case. But we do this because He is holy and set apart, and we're called to do what He calls us to. So now, we've now because, so I just want to start. This is an authority issue. So now, if, if we're recognizing that God is our authority in all things, we have now been given His holy Scripture, okay, inspired and breathed out by God, embodied by Christ as our lone authority on all matters, life and death. And our submission to that is the sacrificial, worshipful life we live in in response to an all-knowing God who procured for us such a wonderful salvation. Okay? you catching the gospel tones again. This is ownership of the gospel before we get into any of this. So, if that's the case, we're going to look at Scripture to gain an understanding of holy sexuality, what, what God designed, what He intended from the beginning of time. Uh, this won't be new to many of you, but I think it's good to, to come back to it continually, and we'll see why as we go, as this is the thing that we have to consistently hold to. So let's go back to Scripture and understand what God designed and what He intended from the beginning. Okay, So the Genesis account, we talk about the beginning, um, is paramount to understanding gender and sexuality, God's creation and how He viewed His creation, okay? The apostles, and indeed even Jesus, pointed back and affirmed the authoritative and binding truths that were established in the creation account, okay? Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, God created human beings. Surprise, surprise. Male and female. There are two genders. The distinctions of gender in humanity are foundational truths that we believe. Gender dysphoria or gender confusion are some of the challenges that people are dealing with today. Okay? However, despite that, any understanding of gender as self-defined or self-determined, regardless of how difficult or challenging that situation is, stands in sharp contrast and opposition to the created order and to the Word of God. Okay? So gender roles may vary from culture to culture, but gender remains rooted in creation rather than culture. Gender remains rooted in creation rather than culture. So male and female humanity is crucial to the plan God had for reproduction and populating the world for His glory. Procreation was a part of that plan, and it requires humankind to be both male and female. That natural attraction between the sexes was God created, and it was meant to be carried out in intimate, monogamous marriage relationships. In Genesis 2, we're jumping ahead a chapter, after God creates Adam, it says there was no suitable helper for him. So God created Eve, and he brought her to Adam. And in verse 23, it says, Then the man said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's in this passage in Genesis 2 that we see God's intentional design of two distinct genders, right? And this is, how, uh, and this is, and this is necessary for covenant marriage. Jesus, I mentioned this earlier, Jesus reiterates this in Matthew 19. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So let me be clear. The Bible teaches 
that marriage is a one flesh union between two sexually different persons, a biological male and a biological female. Now, it's important that we look closely at Scripture when we're interpreting words with the original intention and context. So I want to do that briefly now, uh, looking at Genesis 2, verses 18 and 20. That word suitable helper is referring to the woman that he creates, that he brings into a relationship, a marriage relationship with the man. So the Hebrew wording for that phrase is ezer kenegdo, okay? Ezer is the idea of of a partner in strength, And konegdo is a Hebrew word that really has two pieces to it, ke and negdo. And each of those is referring to something about our makeup or about the makeup of created beings. The first part of that word is is ke or ke, and that means same or similar. Same or similar. And it's referring to to the woman's humanness, okay? In her humanness, she was the same as Adam. Now, remember that the animals that God created, they were all different than Adam, okay? There was no sameness there, so there was no suitable helper for him. So the first woman carried a sameness to the man, ke, ke, ke. The second part of that word, negdo, means different or opposite. So that's referring to the woman's femaleness or her gender. In other words, she is sexually different than him. So that word, konegdo, means the woman, in comparison to the man, was a same different, or she was a similar opposite, okay? It seems kind of a funny wordplay word there, but his good design, uh, this, this word, konegdo, is referring, again, to the same, similar, same different, similar opposite. My pages are out of order, so give me a second here. I jump back to some of this. We just walked through uh, the Hebrew word, konegdo, same... Opposite, similar, different, okay? So there was sameness in her humanity, yet difference in her physical sexuality. So notice again the connection in verses 23 and 24. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this is explicitly about sex difference. It is God's original design, what he set into motion to be good and true. Anything outside of that is sin. Anything outside of that or a perversion of that or a twist on that is sin. So I will say this again. The Bible teaches that marriage is a one flesh union between two sexually different persons, a biological male and a biological female. Okay, so that was God's original design. Now, we have to start there because it is different than what we are seeing now or what culture or even our own feelings may tell us now. So knowing that God is our authority, we have to know what he intended, what his design was, what he set in motion. We have to start there because something critical happens shortly after this. We know this cataclysmic event, Dan referenced it this morning, as the fall. So Adam and Eve disobeyed God, choosing for themselves what they thought was best. Sin entered the world and brokenness poured into every aspect of creation. That event changed the course of history, right? So from that point on, humanity was marred. It was broken and kept from the perfect environment even that God originally intended for us to live. And so we have to acknowledge the fact that this world is not functioning according to God's original design, nor is it the environment where humanity was originally intended to flourish. The fall was disastrous, to the human race, and it marred everything. Remember that list that I gave you earlier of what, what we're to bring under the authority of God. 
So the fall was disastrous enough that it marred everything about humanity, our gifts, abilities, feelings, thoughts, actions, attitudes, experiences, understanding, everything. Everything includes sexuality. So we have to start by admitting that sexuality is broken. That is the world that we live in. It is our current reality. The confusion that we face today has its roots in the fall. Transgenderism, gender dysphoria, divorce, extramarital sex, sex outside of marriage or premarital sex, every other version of sexual sin is the result of that. It includes pornography, pedophilia, polygamy, bestiality, and homosexuality, among others. All of that has to be brought under the authority of God by the power of the gospel. So, this also includes our sexual desires and attractions. Those are fallen as well as they have also been subject to this brokenness. So because of the fall and our resulting sinful nature, people experience sexual attraction towards members of the same sex. Now, we've already established God's intentional design of same-sex attraction lies outside of that, okay? In a similar way that I would desire to satisfy self in anything else, it, that, lie, that in and of itself lies outside of God, what God intended, Okay? So let's talk about same-sex attraction for a minute because I think it's important in driving home the point of authority. So the common understanding in culture is that your sexual orientation describes who you are attracted to or who you experience attraction for. Some people will say that sexual orientation is a matter of biological determinism, okay? that it is naturally a part of who you are, that your attraction comes from a genetically predetermined place hardwired into you. Others will say that same-sex attraction is conditioned by environment or nurture. Others will say it's because of an, an initial sexual experience. Others say it's completely voluntary. Although there is no compelling causal biological explanations for, for sexual orientation, and the idea that people are born that way is not supported by any scientific evidence, the reality is that some people find themselves experiencing same-sex attraction. Regardless of all of that, what we believe is that same-sex attraction is not God's original design for human beings. When Adam and Eve sinned, all kinds of confusion and pain entered the world. But this does not change God's intention, His design, and He wants us to live in the truth of how He created us. Okay? So our biblical understanding of sexual identity is that all of our sexual desires need to be taken captive, regardless of who they are for or where we think they are from, because desires do not necessarily justify action. It won't be formed by feelings, remember? Okay? We believe that a person who experiences same-sex attraction can live in a God-honoring way by surrendering those attractions to the Lord, denying lust, and abstaining from same-sex romantic relationships. In the same way that myself, who does not experience same-sex attraction, but is, is tempted to lust or is tempted to, to steal or to be prideful, I have to take those desires, surrender them to the Lord, and live in accordance with His Word. The truth of Scripture stands alone as the authority we base our beliefs on. The truth is that God is real, His Word is real, and that as Christians we believe what He has said, and we are called to behave in a way, praxis, that is consistent to what He says, what we say we believe by His grace. We cannot exchange conventional wisdom for the truth of God's Word. So, there's so much going on in current conversations, 
and cultural movements uh, regarding sexuality. So be it gay marriage, sexual orientation, gender dysphoria, any of these things I've mentioned, people who are identifying as transgender, it has become really difficult, if you've noticed, to keep up with all of it. Has it not? Okay, so the more society moves forward thinking humanistically, my, my truth philosophy, I determine what is correct, the deeper into unholiness we plunge and the twisted perversion of creation that is sin is more difficult to understand and address as we go. It has become very hard to do that, okay? So how do we navigate sexuality in our culture when it comes to uh, a few things? First one, the moving target, okay? When it comes to the moving target. There is a moving target when it comes to human sexuality. There is always a new twist, something you didn't expect, some crazy nuance. These are things that we aren't necessarily prepared to perfectly or logically discredit as quickly as they appear, okay? But Jesus says this in John 16, Let it encourage you. He says, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. So as the target continues to move and the chaos becomes more chaotic and you feel lost at how to even knowing how to defend your faith in the context of each of these different conversations when it regards sexuality, find freedom in the fact that you do not have to have the next right answer for the slippery slope that is cultural sexuality, okay? So what's our strategy then if we don't have an answer for it? How do we know what we're hearing or running into next is okay, or how do we work through it, whatever else? If it doesn't sound like the gospel, if it doesn't look like the gospel, if it doesn't smell like the gospel, taste like the gospel, it ain't the gospel. Okay? While we do need to know what is happening in our culture, what we can do about it is take peace in the knowledge that the gospel is the right answer to that slippery slope. Okay? For this reason, you have to drive the stake of truth. Drive the stake of truth, God's intentional and perfect design before handling the lies. Okay? Pastor Dan often will give this example, or he has in the past, when being trained to recognize counterfeit cash before ever navigating actual counterfeit, federal agents only handle real, genuine currency. They know it inside and out, what it feels like, what it looks like, so when the fake currency does come along, it hits their hand, and immediately they can flag it and go, hmm, this doesn't feel right. This isn't, this isn't sound right, okay? So you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have the perfect, uh, laid-out, logical you know, argument against some of the next idea or wave of sexuality that you hear. You need to know what's going on, but you don't have to have it all figured out. Hold on to the gospel. Everything we talked about is the first part of what we talked about, the truth of God's intentional design and His creation. That's the truth. Know it inside and out. Hold to it. If it doesn't look like that, if it doesn't feel like that, if it doesn't smell like that, doesn't line up with that, it's not that. Okay? Do you understand what I'm trying to communicate here about the moving target and what you can hold on to? I think that's important. Hold on to Christ's death and His resurrection so the bondage of sin would be broken. We can deny ourselves under His power, living according to His intentions, okay? One of those moving targets, next piece here, one of those moving targets has been, a, been asked personally about me a lot lately. I've had many people ask me these questions. Um, extremely prevalent right now is the pronoun fiasco, okay? And I call it a fiasco because that's what it is. Now, I have thought on this carefully for a while. And we are called to be people of grace while upholding and promoting, really, when I say upholding, promoting truth. So how we go about something is as important as the something itself, okay? Hear me when I say that. 
But the reverse of that is true as well. The truth of something is just as important as our attempts to communicate it with grace. So when I go back to what God designed and intended and the importance of using language, especially for a Christian, to the best of our ability to communicate, to, to communicate the truth of His creation, what we have already talked about, the reality of our human existence, I find zero room for a Christian to use pronouns to describe a person who indeed does not fit the truth of what that pronoun communicates and refers, whether it's to their face or not. I understand that language changes and it morphs, but that is not what is happening. This is, that is a red herring. This is a direct attempt through language to blur the lines between men and women. It is not simply about validating someone's feelings. It is an assault on God's created order. Now, most of you are probably like, yeah, we get that already. Not really going to affect us. Au contraire. There are many ways that this is already being played out. Some of you have a situation maybe with a coworker that has forced this issue to be right in front of you. Um, it's obviously prevalent in our schools several months ago, several months, over a year ago now. Um, we had a female student come to Summit Youth who identified as male. A couple weeks ago, I had a local teacher from our congregation who called me on the phone asking for help as she navigates new expectations surrounding pronouns in school because it's right in front of her. She's being asked to do things that she doesn't understand. Many of your kids are in schools where if they haven't already, they will very quickly start receiving pressure from teachers in the name of being kind and not causing an issue to just call them him or her because it's how they feel and it's simply the nice thing to do to preserve peace and unity. False. It is a direct violation of commandment number nine. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Exodus 20. It is a sin to bear false witness, meaning to lie, to speak untrue things about another person, even if that very person is the one who is asking you to do it. I find no wiggle room in that commandment from God himself. There's my timer. I do not believe that there is a way to get around this. I think each one of us needs to work on this, with, work this out with the Lord, but I, I'll tell you, if you ascribe to this, even with good intentions, trying to err on the side of love and grace, I don't see how there's a place to then begin teaching your kids the difference between boys and girls, the difference between the words him and her. Okay, just logically speaking, how are we to look at our four-year-old boy and teach them that her refers to girls, but once he lands in kindergarten, you give him permission to call girls him if that's what they actually want? What you are actually teaching at that point is subjective truth. How are they supposed to keep that straight even with 30 classmates? When we begin to allow the world to inform or direct our speech in a way that doesn't align with the reality of God-ordered creation, it immediately becomes a false witness. There is no way to get around it. It is not bearing the truth. We sang the song this morning, Christ Be Magnified. That's a powerful song. There's a powerful bridge, right? That we sang that breakdown in the middle of the song. I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. And if, you put, if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you are there too. I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, I'll be crucified with you. In the chorus, Christ, be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ, be magnified in me. Oh, Christ, be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ, be magnified in me. We do the opposite of magnifying Christ when we willingly speak untruths in the name of love and inclusion. 
I think I've beaten that horse. It's dead. So, what can we do then, I think, to navigate that well? Again, that's going to continually move, and we're going to have to keep holding to the gospel there, but for now, here are a couple thoughts. So, I, I gave the truth part. Now, how do we handle that with grace? Okay? A couple thoughts. Call them by their name. Call them by their name. Avoid it at all possible if you can. Call them by their name, okay? If you or your kids find yourselves in a situation like this, call them by their name. A name doesn't have inherent, inherent biological markers to it, okay? While there may be stereotypical guy names and girls' names, if, you know, Chuck wants to be Betty now, so be it, okay? Thank you for laughing, JC. I, still, I mean, I still struggle with this one, but I think it's, it's arguable that the use of names in modern culture is merely to identify the particular person, not to define them. Pronouns are a defining word, okay? It's referencing, it's supposed to be referencing truth and reality. So unless we're really to completely throw language out altogether, we can't do that. I think you can avoid using untrue pronouns by using a name. I don't, I don't believe that you need to concede any truth. I don't believe that you're doing that by, by just using a name as odd as it might be to call Chuck Betty. But the point here isn't to hide the truth. It, it's just not to go out of your way to prove a point or make, or make people know that you disagree or I'm holding the line on this one. That's not the attitude that I'm trying to communicate here. Okay? One of the other things I talked about with this teacher um, was encouraging her to go back to her employer and gracefully, here's the second piece here, um, first thing was call them by their name, but I encouraged her to go back and ask for clear expectations from her employer, okay? As they move forward with pronouns, what explicitly am I being asked to do? And then after she has those, you can look at those expectations within a job description and say, okay, can I live a Christ-magnified life while holding to these exceptions, or while holding, while holding to these expectations. If not, it's time to find a new job. I know that's easy for me to say, who I work at a church, and it's hard to hear, but let me take you back to the words we sang this morning. I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong to worship you. If it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. It's easier to sing those words than to accept their reality. Last thing I want to address in this section, I feel like it's going to be a really hard turn. It's a question that we received in the context of, of gender and sexuality. The question was simply this, how do we handle sleepovers with cousins of opposite gender? I thought that was a really great question. Um, I don't think I have a perfect answer to this. I don't think they were expecting a perfect answer, but I will offer some thoughts. Um, again, not as a here's the line or do exactly this because I have it figured out, but more here's some things to think about as I talk to a couple people about uh, this question and what uh, some things to encourage people with. Um, I believe that the younger the kids are become a little bit less of an issue this becomes, but even so, here are some thoughts um, for this. Uh, first, common spaces and present adults are your friend. Common spaces and present adults are your friend. If you're going to have a sleepover, have it in a living room in a common space, trusted adults nearby. That's just providing a safe environment with built-in accountability. Uh, the second thing, keep bedroom doors open. Keep bedroom doors open. When more than one person is in a room, regardless of who it is or how old, it's a good practice to keep the door open. Okay? This is, again, it's just a way to help kids or teens live above reproach. They may not like it, but it keeps them safe. And then lastly, don't be naive. 
Uh, Pastor Bradley actually reminded me of this one. This one's directly from him. Uh, especially parents of teenagers, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Um, again, the question references a sleepover of, of, of cousins of, the, of opposite gender. Um, this moves a little bit beyond that. But as parents of teenagers, don't think that simply because your teenage daughter has another teenage girl or your teenage boy has another teenage boy over for the night that there's nothing to consider. Okay? I didn't say worry. I said consider. We are living in a time where sexual curiosity of all types is not just encouraged, it's celebrated. So don't be naive when it comes to even teenage years of friends that they have over, especially at night. Um, so again, common spaces are your friend. Bedroom doors open are your friend. Um, I don't know if that answered your question with sufficiency, but I hope so. <laughs> um, all right, you heard my timer go off. Uh, we covered a lot right there. I spoke fast, and we had a little bit of break in the middle of my note fiasco. Um, some of that may seem uh, a bit disjointed, but the core of the matter is that God in all of His holiness as our maker and creator of the universe, God, He created beauty and order, and the beauty shines within the order, and the order is beautiful, okay? We need to strive by the power of the Spirit to live in ways that reflect God's intentional design for sex and sexuality. It's holding to that law of liberty that James references in chapter 2, that law that brings freedom, right? Good things have boundaries. God knows what we need. We live in obedience to Him because of His authority, but also because He protects us from all sorts of brokenness when we follow His perfect ways, okay? I want to jump into some discussion time, just a couple questions on the screen. Use your bathroom if, use the bathroom if you need it, and Alyssa will come up in about 10 minutes and we'll continue on. All right, so how do we teach God's design of sexuality to our littles before talking about sex? This has been one of my big questions for the past several years. When my kids were two and four, we started seeing more and more same-sex couples, and I knew that my kids were going to be noticing and asking questions, and I had no idea what I was going to say. True, sometimes distraction and avoidance are appropriate, but I knew that this was not going away, and so this was something that I was going to need to respond to, and the longer I waited, the bigger a conversation it was going to be. So I've spent the past three or four years now thinking through this very question. How do we answer our kids' questions about gender and sexuality before telling them about sex? And here's what I've learned. This is also why it's important to be intentional about what we're communicating right away. We're already doing it. Every time we interact with our spouse, every time we talk about our kids' bodies, every time we say, show me your nose, show me your mouth, show me your shoulders, show me your belly button, show me your knees, we're communicating about their bodies. Every time we comment on someone else's appearance or behavior, every time we reference the differences between boys and girls, every time we talk about relationships, bodies, and gender, we are shaping our kids' view of sexuality and what it means to be a boy or a girl created in the image of God. So the question isn't how to talk about these things as much as what are we actually communicating as we already are talking about these things. And like Chuck often references, how are we communicating these things as we go? 
So I realize I am communicating some subconscious assumptions and beliefs that I don't actually want to be passing on to my kids. I first became aware of the significance of these subconscious assumptions through this excellent book that I read, all with Kristen. She is not here tonight. It is Sean McDowell and John Stone Street's book, Same Sex Marriage, where they claim same-sex marriage isn't causing a radical shift in our understanding of marriage and family. And by the way, the reason we're picking on same-sex marriage here is because this book was written in 2014. And we were living in a different world. Um, so that's, I would maybe substitute here. I think the same could be said for gender confusion in general. But here we're talking about same-sex marriage. So same-sex marriage isn't causing a radical shift in our understanding of marriage and family. Rather, it is largely the result of one. The revisionist view of marriage is riding on an ideological wave that has reshaped Western ideas about gender, sexuality, and human freedom. Same-sex marriage is one of the many cultural innovations left in its wake. And now, do the math, eight years later, you know, I think we are seeing the truth of what they, what they wrote. So let's read that again. Same-sex marriage isn't causing a radical shift in our understanding of marriage and family. Rather, it is largely the result of one. The revisionist view of marriage is riding on an ideological wave that has reshaped Western ideas about gender, sexuality, and human freedom. Same-sex marriage is one of the many cultural innovations left in its wake. And then they, um, oh, where am I? I'm really tired and I forgot my reading glasses. I am that old. So my eyes are not working quite right this morning or this evening. Aye, aye, aye. Um, and then McDowell and Stone Street proceed to lay out many of these various shifts in our understandings of gender, sexuality, personhood, identity, purpose, and freedom that have occurred over these past hundred years, making same-sex marriage and our current gender ideologies the logical next step. And I saw myself in these shifts. Many of these I myself had accepted, not realizing that I had adopted them. I was like the frog in the boiling water. And I saw how I was a product of my culture, and I didn't even recognize the discrepancies between things that I had accepted and the gospel. And I would say, I think, as I was sitting over there, I think I'm older than most of you. And so I would say, if I have accepted, if I am a product of these cultural shifts, I would imagine that many of you are as well, and so this is something to consider. So it's these discrepancies, or rather the truth that opposes them, that we get to highlight when our kids are young. It's what, what Chuck and Dan were talking about with handling the real in order to recognize the counterfeit. Because God has designed child development such that parents are the primary shapers of our kids' frameworks for understanding the world around them. Culture only gets that job to the extent that we give it to them. So if we are intentional about how we communicate this gospel to our kids, God can shape their hearts and minds to recognize cultural deceptions and shine brightly in their generation. You know, I was thinking... Recently, I heard about a group that was rebuilding a bunch of houses after forest fires out west, and they were so proud of the fact that the buildings they were reconstructing 
were, had really high heat ratings. And so they were designed to withstand wildfires. And then I thought about, you know, Ian. Um, we just moved Steve's mom up here yesterday from Florida. And when she had her house inspection, you know, they had to check to make sure that the roof, I don't know, they have to do something special in Florida to make sure they're close enough together so that, you know, they're super windproof. We're going to be putting, you know, we, we have a basement because tornadoes are a threat here. So we design buildings based on the pressures that they are most likely to have to withstand. And we know that these particular parts of a secular worldview are things that are, are pressures that our kids are going to be under. And so these are particular aspects of the gospel that we need to be highlighting when our kids are tiny because we know that those things are going to be challenged as they grow. And the brain has a, well, yeah. We talked about how repetition is super important. So, how was I a product of my culture? How do I think you are likely products of your culture? What were these cultural assumptions I had unwittingly bought into? What was the boiling water? It is called worldview. The American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language defines worldview as the overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world, or a collection of beliefs about life and the universe held by an individual or group. So the gospel that Chuck keeps talking about, this four-part story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, this big story, this gospel is a worldview. This is our worldview. It is the framework through which we understand the world. This is our grid. This is our lens for interpreting everything but it has competition. Its main competition, at least in Western culture, or at least the one that I recognize as having the most influence on me, is often referred to as secular humanism. According to Wikipedia, secular humanism, often simply called humanism, is a philosophy, belief system, or life stance that embraces human reason secular ethics, and philosophical naturalism, the idea or belief that only natural laws and forces, as opposed to supernatural ones, operate in the universe, while specifically rejecting religious dogma, supernaturalism, and superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. Did you catch that? Humanism, the philosophy, wait, Okay, humanism, all of these things, human reason, secular ethics, philosophical naturalism, all of which I think are super helpful <coughs> in a pluralistic society. But see, I saw them as kind of like our neutral ground, like the way that we all can work together, you know, outside of our religious frameworks. But it's not just that. Yes, it's, it's common ground, but it is explicitly opposed to supernatural, to claims of supernatural revelation and supernatural um, authority, which is exactly what Chuck was just talking about. It specifically denies and is opposed to the idea that there would be some a for or a being outside of humanity that would have the authority to give moral laws to humanity. <clears throat> so this isn't just finding common ground. It is explicitly opposed to faith. 
And that rejection of the supernatural has significant implications for our views on gender and sexuality. For example, if humanity is nothing but an accident of unguided evolution, sexuality has no higher meaning. It is just our species' way of ensuring that we don't die off. So why wouldn't we encourage one another to be true to our inner selves and our sex drives? And then if there is no higher power guiding us to the best ways to live, then sexual ethics can very reasonably be boiled down to consent and equity. Is it fair? Is there coercion involved? If not, awesome. There's nothing wrong with it. And that is very logical within this framework. But we do believe there's a higher power. I know him. I have seen the Lord, not with my own physical, not with my physical eyes, to my knowledge. I maybe have and didn't realize it. But I have seen the Lord. So everything that we have been talking about with, expo with praying for our kids and reading the Bible with our kids and encouraging our kids to develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit, these are all super important in helping them to be able to distinguish truth because we believe in an actual Holy Spirit that actually guides us into all truth and helps us recognize deceit. But in addition... <laughs> to my own personal experience with him. I am a Christian because I believe the biblical story is the best explanation for how and why the world is the way that it is. And I believe that the Christian story is the best explanation for how and why humanity, it, how and why I am the way that I am. The Christian story is the best explanation for why I do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I do I hate. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do we communicate this gospel to young children in a way that prepares them to embrace God's design for sexuality? Well, there are many great resources for this. A couple, several of them are on the back table. But a lot of this presentation will be coming from things highlighted in this series that I hope you all go home and buy. Stan and Brenna Jones... God's Design for Sex. As a quick plug, okay, so these four books are written for kids. The first two, Before I Was Born and The Story of Me, are picture books. Uh, the Story of Me is for ages three to five. Before I Was Born is for five to eight. Then What's the Big Deal is for kids eight to 12. So What's the Big Deal and Facing the Fact are both chapter books written for upper elementary. What's the Big Deal is written for 8 to 12-year-olds, and then Facing the Facts is for 12 to 16-year-olds. Then in addition to these books written for kids, I recommend the next one, which is The Parent's Guide by the Same Authors, How and When to Tell Your Kids About Sex. This is wonderful because it, um, it gives a lot of really helpful, like, case studies and sample dialogues like what do you do when you go to, into the bathroom and your child is running their private parts under bath water how do you say your body is good god designed your body to react that way so that you know you can to to draw you closer you know to your wife if you get married someday like how do we celebrate their body and who god has created them to be while um 
yeah, how do we have those conversations? This is super awkward for a lot of us. Um, and so I found it really, really helpful to be able to read examples of like how they would handle different questions and different things that come up as, as, as you go, as you walk in the road. Um, okay. Yeah, and in these series, they break these conversations down into the four different phases of children's development. So, without further ado, ages and stages for teaching God's design for sexuality to children. Hang on to your hats. It is 6.30. Okay, during infancy and early childhood, we need to be highlighting the gospel by constantly communicating that God is good and God's ways are the best. Someday, humanism will claim, will tell our kids that God's ways are repressive and harmful, dangerous and naive. So let's really establish these brain pathways now that connect God and God's ways with goodness and wisdom. God is good and God's ways are always best. Especially when my kids were small, I tried doing this by always speaking positively about God with a smile on my face. I tried I don't know that this was the right thing to do, but I tried to kind of leave God out, God and the Bible out of discipline when they were tiny because I, that's not the first message that I wanted them to receive about God. Um, yeah. For better or for worse, that was a conviction that I had. Um, secondly, God made me. Someday they will hear that life was the happy result of unguided evolution and therefore holds no inherent value or sanctity. But the gospel insists that God made the world and God called it good. Now, this is not a claim as to how God made the world. This is not a claim that God made it in seven 24-hour periods. Neither is it a claim that God used natural processes that took billions of years. You may have a very strong opinion about that, and you may be right, but that question is beyond the scope of this evening. My point here is not how God created the world, but to insist that it was God who created it. Next one, Jesus loves me, and nothing can stop Jesus from loving me. Again, someday our kids are going to feel insecure as to God's love. It might be that they're believing the lie of secularism, that God actually doesn't exist, and they're alone in the world, and God is a figment of their imagination. Or more likely, growing up in the church, they are going to experience shame as a result of, their own, or as a result of sexual brokenness, whether it is their own or that of someone else that has been opposed, imposed upon them. It may be that they will be survivors of sexual abuse. These things are so heavy. It may be that they will experience same-sex attractions. It may be that they will struggle with addiction to pornography. Sexual sin takes so many forms, but few of us get out of this world unscathed. And the Bible is not a moralistic instruction manual on how to be good. As much as the good news or gospel of a God who pursues people when they're not good. 
So let's begin our kids' sojourn through this broken world with the confidence that they are beloved of God and that they can always come to him no matter what particular forms their sinful nature takes. God made our bodies and said they were very good. Again, someday they will hear that humanity came about by random chance, by creatures acting according to their instincts. And therefore, we should pursue whatever feels good and right, or they might feel frustrated with, betrayed by, or ashamed of their bodies. Or they might wonder if they could perhaps have been born into the wrong body. But the gospel says that no, No, the God of this universe designed their bodies and that they are very good. So I often articulate things like, I love how God gave you such a good brain for building things. Or, look how God made you run so fast. Or when one of their ouchies heals, God gave your body such an amazing way to grow new skin. Anything that warrants a wow I'll try to turn into a look how God made your amazing body statement. Next is God loves that he made me, me, God loves that he made me a girl. Someday they will likely be told that their biology biology is irrelevant to their identity. But the gospel says that God made boy image bearers and God made girl image bearers. And as Christopher Yuan articulates, gender is observed at birth, not assigned. It is observed. And this designation of boy or girl was part of God's very good design of your child's body. Now, that said, I think we also need to be really careful, especially at these early ages, of burdening our kids with gender stereotypes. Because one of our culture's lies is that if... if, If a child does not fit into secular, unbiblical gender stereotypes, he or she might therefore not be that gender. And this is a lie from the pit of hell. Listen to how Jackie Perry explains her journey. I think what's what's helpful for people to understand is that I do think that some of the gender identity issues uh, within our world today are a consequence of our failure to communicate what real femininity and masculinity is. And let me explain. Um, Growing up, I was never the typical girl. I I didn't like pink, still don't. Uh, Didn't wear purses, still don't. There's too much baggage, I got pockets. Um, You know, I didn't use extra S's when I talked. All the things. (laughs) No, that's what they say girls do, right? I didn't do all the things that they said women do. And so what they called me was Tom Boy. What they said was, you're acting like a boy. So then I start to think that my kind of femininity is not femininity at all. I must actually be what you're saying that I am. And we do the same thing to boys. He cries and we say, you're acting like a girl. When in, he's actually acting like an image bearer. He's acting like a human. And so why else do you expect, or how else would you expect people to believe themselves to be if we have imposed these kinds of social constructs about gender identity that aren't even in the Bible? I think what would help our society is if we get a thorough theology of what it means to be a woman. 
And not a theology of what it means to be a woman that describes women as people that cook. Or women as people with soft voices. Or women as people that wear dresses. These, that's why you, when you see those who will become to, begin to transition into a, a trans sense of self, they will always become a hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine view of what they believe a woman is. So if I have bigger breasts, if I wear a dress, if I wear long hair, I am now a woman because I become what you told me women were. Uh, so for me, I was confused. And so I put on these clothes because it felt like the most natural thing to do. It felt like that was the way for me to truly be me. It felt like that was natural in a sense. So let's celebrate our boys and girls. Let's affirm that God made them boys or girls, that God wanted them to be a boy, or God wanted him to be a boy, that God wanted her to be a girl, and that God loves that you are a creative boy and God loves that you are a musical boy and God that God made you to be a sensitive boy and you find role models like like David in the Bible you know or God made you a strong leader like God made you a, a woman a girl God made you a girl who could lead others well and you look at Deborah and Corey Tinboom and you find heroes that that resonate with how God made your son or daughter, a boy or a girl. And finally, this one's a little bit flipped because all the others were in the first person and this is a mantra that I would give. I give you rules because I love you and I want to keep you safe. Chuck touched on this. This one actually hits two different lies. First, it prepares our kids to recognize deceptions regarding the nature of love. Our culture says that love is permissive. It equates love with approval. Love is love, they say. Rejecting someone's behavior is paramount to rejecting her as a person. But the gospel describes God's love as truthful, and it is not loving to encourage someone's belief in a lie. The second um, lie that this, this mantra, I give you rules because I love you and I want to keep you safe, hits is that rules are inherently repressive and that rules are designed to keep kids from something good. No, rules are designed, rules given by a loving authority are designed to protect what is good. Those are very, very different things. Our culture says that Christians don't value sexuality or we see sexuality as negative because we maintain that God gives us rules surrounding it because they, are, they protect what is wonderful as opposed to keeping us from what is wonderful. And then as our little kids grow, we build on these foundations. So we're gonna go to the next section. In early elementary school, we really begin delving into the gospel or the big story. When our kids were tiny, we were telling them, you know, we're telling them individual Bible stories about Adam and Eve and about creation and about the fall and about Jesus individual Bible stories. But as our kids grow, we start connecting those stories to become part of the big story. Um, the big story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Okay, and in our home, we refer to this story all the time. Why are our bodies so amazing? The big story. Why do people die? The big story. Why are there hurricanes and tornadoes? The big story. Why does mommy struggle so much with impatience? 
the big story. <laughs> Why would some people want to hurt children? The big story. Will climate change destroy the earth? The big story. You want to know what I'm gonna, what, how I respond? Well, just the big story, you know? <laughs> Figure it out. The story, this story is our worldview. It is our framework for understanding the world in which we're living. And so once our kids have the framework of the big story, it becomes a grid, it becomes a way for us to explain everything else, including sexuality. So here's how we articulate it to our kiddos. We don't say creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I say, one, God created a perfect world and called it good. But people wanted to be in charge of their own lives, and so they disobeyed God. And God's perfect world, the entire cosmos, became broken by sin. But God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And someday, Jesus will return to restore all that is broken and make all things new. That is the big story that we tell our kids. And like I said, we use this story all the time to explain why our world is the way that it is and where it is all going. And every time we repeat it and every time we reapply it to a new situation, we are reinforcing it as the framework through our kids can understand the world. And now that my kids are six and eight, we're beginning to apply it to questions of gender and sexuality, which is why I'm so thankful that they internalized it when they were younger because now it's super, super helpful. Um, I mean, and it's not just helpful. I mean, I think it, that it's true. Um, but it also helps us, uh, it helps us to talk about sex before we're talking about sex. And then we talk about how God has a wonderful plan for their lives. This wonderful plan may include marriage with lots of kids. This wonderful plan may include marriage without kids. This wonderful plan may not include marriage at all. Someday they will hear that their sexual identities are who they are and that sexual expression is a human right because sexual fulfillment is the only path to human flourishing. But the Bible paints a very different picture. In Isaiah 56, thus saith the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. And then in Matthew 19, which, which Chuck was referring to, where Jesus refers back to creation and God's creation of male and female and God's affirmation of God's design for marriage, in that exact same passage, Jesus also says that some eunuchs are born that way. Some are made that way by men and still others choose to be eunuchs for the sake of the gospel. I think it might say, for the sake of the kingdom of God. I don't remember. And those who can't accept this should do so. Paul, too, says that he wishes all were single as he was. And he even describes a spiritual gift of singleness as one who doesn't burn with desire for the opposite sex. So I tell Lydia, my daughter, Lydia, if you don't want to marry a man, that tells me that God's good plans for you don't include marriage right then. 
And I've told Adam, Adam, if you don't want to marry a woman someday, God's plans for you, God's good plans for you don't include marriage right then. But regardless of their marital status, God has good plans for their lives. One tool that we have been using to help create a template for the possibility of singleness has been to tell missionary stories at dinner. There are several great book series for elementary kids, including or introducing them to faith heroes, but this has been one of our favorites. I think I have a slide for that. Yeah. Hero Tales. It's, it is on the back if you want to take a look. And it's divide, it's like three pages per story, so they're really short, and then they have discussion questions after them. And there are I think four volumes. Um, I think we're on number three. I don't remember which number we're on. Um, but they're really helpful in introducing our kids to a lot of different people in history, a lot of different heroes, and a lot of different cultures. Which leads me to the next point, worldview. As our kids begin noticing other family structures, other religions, and they encounter families with different rules than their own, I've really struggled with, how, with knowing how to affirm our own family's beliefs while still honoring and respecting those who are different. And I think that talking about worldview can really help. We've just started these conversations. Again, my kids are six and eight, and this is kind of something that we've delved into in the last, I would say, six months. You know, Chuck kept, kept referring to the chorus of the song that we, we sang this morning. Following Jesus is countercultural. And this might feel kind of like a duh, but practically speaking, I think it's a little new for many of us. We have grown up in a world where the laws of society were basically aligned with a Judeo-Christian moral ethic. So we really have not exercised these countercultural muscles very much. But these missionary stories have helped our family because they have given us examples of other times and places. Um, we've read about Corey Tinboom and about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, lots, lots of people throughout history um, that we're following Jesus did mean holding a different conviction and being misunderstood by the culture around them. And knowing that my kids are going to be facing this kind of pressure. And they are going to be called intolerant. I mean, if they hold to, if they adopt this as their worldview, they will be called intolerant. And they are probably, if they are anything like me, they are going to question themselves because they can't imagine the majority being wrong. In light of this, I am always looking for opportunities to highlight people throughout history who have stood strong in the face of cultural pressure. Because, and because of this context, then when my kids ask about same-sex marriage, I can draw on these examples when responding. You know what? This is one of those areas where we believe something different than, than our broader culture. Um, sorry, my eyes. We have not actually had this conversation, but I wrote it out um, because, because there were different family structures represented in one of our school textbooks. And so I assumed that this is probably going to be something my kids were going to ask about. And then they, they didn't, but I'm, I'm glad that I kind of thought through a response ahead of time. So what I wrote is, this is one of those areas where we believe that the Bible teaches something different than what most people in our broader culture believe. 
in our country, marriage is seen as a special promise between two people who love each other, no matter who they are. That means that anybody can get married, whether they are men or women. And we agree that marriage is a special promise, but believe that the Bible describes Christian marriage as a unique relationship bringing together a man and a woman to become a new family. Speaking of which, the talk. At some point in these years, you're going to have to explain, so how does the baby get in there? And in this conversation, you're going to share the gospel message that God's design for families is amazing. Someday, they're going to hear that sex is just a drive. It's just an impulse. It's just an instinct. It's just something that we do just like the animals. And they're going to see sex being treated casually and flippantly. They will probably be taught that sexual exploration is an important part of them discovering their identities. And they will be encouraged to have multiple sexual partners. But we get to describe for them how good God's design is and how amazing God is to have our brains release bonding chemicals that make a mommy and daddy feel closer and actually strengthens their relationship and their family, etc., etc., etc. If this conversation feels awkward and hard, um, know that it's super important and it is worth becoming comfortable with before you have it <laughs> because our kids do pick up on our discomfort. So there are, there are two different books back there um, by two different authors that um, are like picture books designed to be read with your kids. Um, there's also a, do I have that Jennifer Deg, did I put up, I might not, there's, do I have a Jennifer Degler, I might have taken it out. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you about it. I guess I, I decided not to, but I'm going to, because if you look like how to talk about sex with your kids on the internet, I mean, you're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to come up with a lot. So one thing that I really like, there is a Christian, um, you can write this down, there is a Christian psychologist named Jennifer Degler. Um, I think it's D-E-G-L-E-R. And she has a, a four, part, four videos that are like between five and ten minutes each called How to Talk About Sex with Your Preschooler, How to Talk About Sex with Your um, early element or with your elementary student, how to prepare your son for puberty and how to prepare your daughter for puberty. And I have found those super helpful and they're only, you know, they're short. <laughs> so look those up if you, if you feel like you want some help getting comfortable with that conversation because, again, our kids are going to pick up on our discomfort and that is not the message that we want to give them. The other, we want to become the authorities. How, I'm going to, yeah, man, I'm, all right. Um, how do kids, how do we, when we have questions, where do we go? The internet. That's not where we want them to go with these questions. That's really dangerous. So we need to do everything in our power to make ourselves askable. Um, yeah. Oh, man. All right. And we're also going to address the world, the, some of the distortions. Sorry, guys. I am out of time. Okay. 
So I'm going to tell you, for these distortions, a few pro tips, as Chuck calls them, when speaking about these distortions. I'm specifically talking about, about um, same-sex relationships and questions about gender identity. Um, I think these are kind of the two big things that our kids are most like to face, likely to face right now, whether they're in our own families or, um, or in the culture at large. When explaining homosexuality, I have found it helpful to define the four different Greek words for love used in the New Testament. Um, I have, yeah, okay, and here's why. During early elementary school, it is a normal part of a child's healthy development to prefer same-sex friendships. I read about this in a child development book written in the 80s that had absolutely nothing to do with sexuality. This is just a normal part of child development. When our kids are really young, the boys and girls all play together, but at some point, boys usually start preferring male friends, and most girls usually start prefer preferring female friends. This is normal. But now that kids are being encouraged to explore their gender and sexual identities, it could potentially be really confusing and even lead kids into bondage if they get the message that she's gay because she likes girls, or he's gay because he likes boys, or something similar. So it's really important to be able to articulate that there are different kinds of love, and that most of the, the, that in the Bible, there are four different Greek words for love. Um, and you can find more about this. I can talk to you about it. Most of which are very good for boys to have for other boys and for girls to have other girls. But there is one kind of love, eros, that's a special kind of love that makes people want to share their bodies with one another, their whole bodies with one another. And that kind of love is the kind of love that mommy and daddy experience in our marriage. And that kind of love, or that mommy and daddy uniquely <laughs> experience in our marriage, and that's the kind of love that should only grow between a man and a one, one man and one woman. So articulating the differences between those different kinds of love, I think, is, is really helpful. Also, when explaining or, you know, when your kids, when our kids ask um, about, about people who are transitioning, I've heard some people say, and this is even in one of the picture books that I have back there, that otherwise I really, really like, but I've heard people say that when someone isn't living according to their biology, they either aren't following Jesus or they're sinning. And while this may be true, I think a better description, especially when talking to our ki to kids about other kids, is they're confused about how God made their bodies. And they think that God made a mistake when God made them a boy or a girl. Because even though it might be true that they're not following Jesus, it might be true, I mean, is true, that they are sinning, it is also true and a lot more charitable and I think a lot more opens, it is also true and I think it's more helpful to say, I think at a deeper level, before they are sinning, they're confused about who God made them to be. And before they're sinning, they're, they're insecure and they think that God made a mistake. And so that's how I, I have talked with my kids about, um, about girls who want to grow up to be a man, or boys who want to grow up to be a woman, is they're confused. They don't, they don't, they think that God made a mistake, and that's really sad. Okay, um, next slide. So then, 
Another huge part is just standing guard, protecting our kids, protecting our kids from abuse, protecting our kids from pornography, um, protecting our kids, or, or uh, yeah, you, we, we've heard about this, protecting our kids from sexual exposure. Next slide. Um, when next, this is the next stage, so now we're talking eight to 12 year olds. One tip when explaining puberty, I would be careful to say, because we don't know how our kids are going to experience sexual brokenness. We don't know how our kids are going to experience the fall. And we don't want to be describing um, sexuality to them in such a way that it's later going to add on to any shame they might experience. So when explaining puberty, I would say, you know, many people experience this, many people experience this, but not assume anything about how our kids are going to experience their bodies and their sexuality. Next. Yeah, encouraging questions. You don't want them to go to the internet. You don't want them to go to, your, to their friends. You really want them to come to you. So do everything in your power to be approachable. And guarding screens. Next slide. Oh, shoot, guarding screens. Okay, there are... Um, Yeah, we've talked about that. Okay, Chuck. Discussion, prayer, sorry. Okay. Some obviously very deeply spiritual conversations being had over here at this table. We were having one at our table as well. Um, I just I want to say thank you for sticking through with us for the last uh, six weeks. I hope that some of this was helpful. Um, I was encouraged by those who came and taught. I was encouraged by our conversations that we had at our table. We're figuring this out together as we go. We'll figure this out. God's grace, um, God's grace is available to us. His mercies are new every day as we are discipling our kids. Again, if I could re reiterate anything from the last six weeks, God is not calling you to be perfect. God is calling you to be faithful, and his grace will help you as you disciple your kids. You have made mistakes, and you will make mistakes moving forward. But God's grace, God's grace. My parents made mistakes. I turned out okay. I'll be all right. You guys will be all right. Your kids will be okay. Um, teach them Teach them the big story. It has the answer for everything. Teach them the big story, okay? Um, thank you, Alyssa, for sharing. I know that there's so much in your heart and so much research and so much time you have invested in this because you are passionate about it, and it matters. The stuff matters. Um, she has put in way more time than we will ever know into some of this. Um, one of the things I do want to make you aware of coming up in January um, is a gender and sexuality workshop that we are hosting. So it's this, but expanded out over several hours here on basically a Saturday uh, morning, maybe into early afternoon. Um, we had a run of this a while ago with, with some of our leaders and elders in our church, and we wanted to rework some of that. You got a little bit of the taste of that tonight, but um, if you want to go more in-depth with some of this as we continually learn and try to continually faithfully walk the gospel out in our current cultural moment, um, I want to encourage you to look for information that is coming for that soon. Um, we'll announce uh, more about the details there, but it'll be on one day. I do know the date now at this point. It is January 28th. Um, of 2023. So that is very, very soon, just within a few months. Um, she'll make sure that that is on your calendar. Would love to have all of you there. Again, that's going to be aimed especially at families, um, not just of littles, but of preteens and teenagers um, and, and beyond. So uh, make sure that that is on your calendar. Um, last thing, um, 
uh, to head out tonight. It was a beautiful day. And so, you know, have some ice cream. What if we just took this and just moved over to Culver's and had a little bit of a ice cream party with everybody here? You guys up for that? So I have some free ice cream uh, coupon things from Culver's for each of you. Um, because of the fact that we had some people missing tonight, I get to give you more of them uh, than I had anticipated. Uh, so that's exciting. So uh, make sure you see me before you head out the door. And yeah, if you guys are up for ice cream tonight, let's just kind of shift over to to Culver's as soon as we're done. Maybe get your kids out here a little bit quicker, sugar them up before bed. That'll be good. You're welcome. Um, but these are for you. Uh, I'll pass these out. I think I can do, uh, We I think up to like three per family now. These are all free scoops of ice cream. So I can't cover all of it, but that will get you started. You know, you're welcome. Um, Jerry, I don't know I'm putting you on the spot, but uh, I wanted to ask you to pray for our time as we head out. Can you Can you pray us out? Thanks, buddy. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for uh, bringing us all together today, God, and allowing us to have uh, these difficult conversations and to um, look in advance and prepare for uh, for the future for our children and for the community around us. I pray you help us to continue to respond with truth and grace and uh, that your love would be known. Um, we thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.